Let's go ahead and pray before we uh, look at God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace that you've displayed toward us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that, uh, that you would be pleased to cause us to gain from his reward, Lord, the reward that um, came by his toil, his suffering, his sacrifice, Father, that, that you would allow us to benefit from what he has accomplished for us. Lord, he has done it all. He has done all the work necessary to reconcile us to you. Lord, he has lived the righteous life that we refused to live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, paying for our sins on the cross, suffering your wrath, Lord, in our place. And he has rose from the dead in glory, and he has done all of that so that you might be glorified, that your grace uh, may be put on display to the whole universe, that you would make wretches like us your treasure, Lord. It is only what Christ has done that has made us um, savable, Lord. It is no work that we have done. It is all what he has done, Lord. And we praise you for him, and we give our lives to serve him forever, not to earn anything from him, but simply because he is worthy of that, and we love him, Lord. And we pray that uh, you would teach us and instruct us more about yourself, more about him as we come to your word, that you would show us more how to live for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Psalm 3 this morning, which we read for our call to worship, but I'll go ahead and I'll read it again. Psalm 3. It says that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Verse 1, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is a prayer of David that he's recorded for us. And for most of us, prayer is an area of the, our Christian life where we know we need to grow. We know it's something that we're supposed to do, but we don't realize how important it is, or we don't quite believe that there is as much power that comes through it as there really is, and so prayer falls way down to the bottom of our list of priorities. And this misplaced prioritization of prayer is exposed when we come upon times of very severe trial. And in the fires of those trials, you know, we'll shoot up little shotgun prayers, Lord, help me, and that's good. It's good to do that, but we feel that we cannot devote any serious thought or energy or time to prayer because there's too much that I have to do to fix this. And if I don't take care of it, it's not going to get taken care of because I'm the only one that I can truly 
rely on. And if God decides to jump in here and help me out, that's great, but I can't really rely on him. So I'm not going to spend some time praying to him. But that is a wrong understanding of prayer, and I'm sure, I'm sure you would affirm that. And Psalm 3 shows us how wrong of an understanding of prayer that is. And this psalm, before we get into it, I want you to notice the title of the psalm. It says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And in the Hebrew Bible, that's actually verse 1 right there. This is a part of the text. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. It tells us that David is the author of this psalm and that the event in his life that spurred him to write this psalm was the conspiring of his own son Absalom against him to steal his throne. And this conspiracy of Absalom forced David to flee Jerusalem. And that event is recorded for us in 2 Samuel. And if there was ever a time for David to freak out and to try to take matters into his own hands, it was then. His own son had stolen the hearts of the people away from him. His own son was taking his throne from him, and his own son was threatening his life and the lives of those loyal to him. Surely, David could not be bothered to waste time on prayer, right? Wrong. Through this psalm, God will show us the importance of prayer and how we should pray confidently during times of trial. And we're going to see, first of all, in verses 1 through 2, that to pray confidently during times of trial, you need to pour out your heart to God. You need to pour out your heart to God. And that's what we see there in those first two verses. David, in this whole psalm, he's sharing with us what the content of his prayers were when he was suffering this conspiracy against him by his own son. He's giving us a window into his prayer life during that time. And as he pours out his heart to God, it's significant that we make note of the fact that God is the one he's turning to. Verse 1, he says, O Lord. And anytime you see Lord with all capital letters, that's signifying that this is the name of God. That is in the text, Yahweh, or some pronounce it Jehovah the name of God. He is calling out to his God. He's laying the problem before his God. And he's doing that because he recognizes that only God can handle this. I want you to think about your children when they were really little. When your daughter, for example, fell down and split her lip or stubbed her toe, what was the first thing she did? She cried out, and then she ran to who? She ran to mom or dad, and then she threw her hands up because she knew that only mom or dad could kiss it and make it better. It's a reflex reaction from your child. If your child knows that you love her, she runs to you. And that's how it should be with us. We need to abandon all hope in ourselves and locate all of our hope in God alone. To the point that when we are distressed, our reflex action 
is not to look to ourselves or look to somebody else. It's to run immediately to him, look to him, throw our arms up in prayer to him because we know that only he can make it better for us. When we look at these first two verses, David is emphasizing just how high things are stacked up against him. He knows only God can do it because of how high things are stacked up against him. Three different times he uses uh, the same root word for many. He says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased, or how my adversaries have become many. He says, many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul. If you were to go back to 2 Samuel and read about the conspiracy of Absalom, you'll find that he had turned, it seems like, half the nation against David. When that civil war happens, there's 20,000 of Absalom's men that are killed. So there's tens of thousands that all at once overnight are against David. And it was to the point that the coup was basically an overnight success. I mean, David heard from a messenger that the hearts of the people are with Absalom, and that very night he left. He left. He fled the throne. And even though it was a momentary success, it was an overnight success. He was easily supplanted. And at the end of verse 2, what are David's enemies saying about him? Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance or no salvation for him in God. And when you think about who David was and his relationship to God, those words could have been very cutting to him. If there was anybody who was looking to God for salvation, it was David. But his enemies are saying that God has turned against David and will not intervene on his behalf. And they thought that the proof of that was the fact that David left the throne. He was fleeing Jerusalem. You remember what God had promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. God told David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. But David's enemies must have thought that God had changed his mind because there goes David running off with his tail between his legs. There's no salvation for him in God, they say. Look, God himself has turned against him. And so David lays that cutting remark before God as well. So what do we learn from these two verses about how we should pray when we are overwhelmed and when we are on the verge of despair? Before we do anything else, we need to honestly and humbly come before God We need to see him as our only hope, and we need to pour out to him our fears, our questions, and our confusion, because we acknowledge that only he can handle this. And that's something we find repeated in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, how do we do that? He goes on saying, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
That's the humble response. It's not you trying to take it all on yourself and deal with it. The humble response is to come before God and confess, I cannot deal with this. I cast this upon you. I know you care for me. We need to pour our heart out to God in prayer. Just a quick note at the end of verse 2, that word that's offset to the right, selah, that's repeated also in verses 4 and 8. The meaning of that word is very much still a mystery. There's just not enough information to fully understand the significance of that word. There's a lot of different opinions and suggestions about it. One was that this word seems to be related to the Hebrew word salal, which means to lift up. And so that this word might have been a notation to alert the singers or the musicians that at this point in the song, you should raise your voice or your instruments to a crescendo, to lift up your voice, to lift up your instruments. And indeed, this verse is a crisis point in the song. This is the lowest point of the song. So it makes sense that this would be a dramatic point in the song. But that's all I'll say about that. So we need to pour out our heart to God. But after we've done that, we're suffering, we come before God, we lay the situation before him, say, God, this is what's going on. I know you know that, but I'm reminding myself that you know that. This is what's happening. I don't know why. Lord, I give this to you. What do we do after we've done that? Where does David's prayer go? Verse 3, he says, but you, but you. He says, but you, O Yahweh. He says, but. So he's contrasting what he's about to say with what who's been saying, what his enemies have been saying. He recognizes that what his enemies are saying is not the truth. It's not reality. His enemies are saying there is no salvation for him in God. But then David says, but. So that's what they're saying, but you, O Yahweh, but you, O Lord. But what? But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. His enemies are many, but David understands that though his enemies are many, he only really needs one person with him, and that one person is God. God is a shield about him. God is surrounding David. He is protecting David on all sides from the weapons of his enemies. Verse 3 goes on. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. God is David's glory. God is the lifter of David's head. What do David's enemies think when they've seen him fly from the throne and flee from Jerusalem? They think that they've laid David low in the dust. They think that they've stolen his glory from him. And they think that because they think that the glory of David consists in his throne or his majestic palace or the love of the people for him. And they think that if they've taken that from him, they've taken his glory. They've done him in. But David says that the value of his life is not to be found in those things. David says, God is my glory. They haven't taken anything from me. David had not exalted himself 
to the throne of Israel. He was just the youngest shepherd boy in the family. God raised him up to that place. And David was not going to be the one to keep himself in the glorious place of the throne of Israel. God was going to be the one to keep him there. And he knew that God had made a promise to him. And David knew that God would keep that promise, regardless of what his enemies were saying, regardless of how the circumstances looked. So do you see what is going on in verse 3? David is preaching the gospel to himself. He's preaching the good news about who God is to himself. And that is what we need to do when we are suffering. We need to lay the problem before God, and then we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. That through Christ, God is a shield about me. Because I trust in Christ, I've turned from my sins, and I'm trusting in Christ. God is my glory. God is the lifter of my head. Even if the circumstances are bleak, I know I'm okay, because God is my glory. Then in verse 4, David goes on, To recount, he says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. This is a turning point in the psalm. It's another high point in the psalm. David has poured out his heart to God, casting his cares upon him. He has proclaimed in his heart, he's proclaimed in his prayer to his heart the truth about God. So David has cried out to God, and he knows that God has heard his plea. He knows that God has answered him from his holy mountain. And we know that this is a turning point in the psalm, because what does he say in verses 5 and 6? What do verses 5 and 6 tell us about the attitude, the state of mind that David is in? What does he say? Verse 5, he says, after he's laid the problem before God, he's preached the truth to himself about God, Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Of all the times to be sleeping, this is not one of those times. The kingdom is being wrenched out of his hands, and there's tens of thousands of people who are seeking to kill him. But David is able to go to sleep. And he was able to sleep because he had reminded himself through prayer that his God is an impenetrable shield around him. He's able to sleep because he had spoken with the God who was his glory and the lifter of his head and that no mere man could thwart the promises that God had made to him. Remember the many that he'd mentioned three times up in verses 1 and 2? Well, in verse 6, he's no longer afraid of them. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves round about me. He's not afraid because he knows that Yahweh, the God of the universe, who's made a promise to him, Yahweh is sustaining him. That is the kind of prayerful attitude that we as Christians ought to have. It's the kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul exhorts us to have. For example, Philippians chapter 4 Verses 6 through 7, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing. Whether your boss is angry and you've got to face him the next morning at work, 
or whether you have an army of thousands, tens of thousands surrounding you. doesn't matter how small or how big the problem. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, what does Paul say the result will be? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You pray to the Lord and then you can go to sleep because you know it's in the Lord's hands. So we've seen how we need to pour out our hearts to God in prayer. We've seen how when praying to God, we need to proclaim to our hearts the truth about God by praising him for who he is in prayer. But there's a third element that needs to be in our prayers if we are to pray confidently during times of trial. And that third element that needs to be present in our prayers is that you need to be persuaded in your heart by God. You need to be persuaded in your heart by God. Be persuaded about what? Be persuaded that he is going to fulfill the promises that he's made to you, that he has promised you something in Christ, and he will be faithful to do what he promised. What does James say about the man who doubts? He's like a double-minded man who ought not to expect that he will receive anything from God. God is faithful. He'll do what he said, and we just need to believe him when we're praying to him in the time of trial. Verse 7, David petitions the Lord. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Remember verse 1, when David saw that his enemies were rising up. But now here in verse 7, he's calling on Yahweh to rise up. And remember what David's enemies had said about him in verse 2. They said there's no salvation for him in God. But here in verse 7, David calls on God to do what his enemies say he will not do, and that is save him. Now, does David think that God will be faithful to save him? How do you know? Yes, he he does think he will be faithful. And we find that in verse 7. He says, For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. He speaks of it as if it's already happened. The very mouths that tried to drive David to despair, in verse 2, are the very mouths that Yahweh will crush never to utter such things again. You see, the wicked do not have any say on whether or not God will deliver someone because, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign over salvation. He saves whomever he wishes. And no mere man can ever deny you your salvation in God. And God has already made clear to David. He's already established that relationship that he has with David. He promised him, you will never lack a man to sit upon your throne. I will establish your throne forever. No strings attached. No conditions stated. He has saved David. He will save David. David closes that verse, verse 8, by saying, Your blessing be upon your people. 
Hebrew often states parallel thoughts, which is just a different way of saying the same thing. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Your blessing or your salvation be upon your people. God's blessing, his salvation rests upon his people forever and always. And there are no armies that can take that away from us. So when we pray to God confidently, that prayer is simply the act of faith whereby you are clinging to the promises of God. Because you don't make it through times of distress by trying to muscle your way through it. You can't defeat armies of tens of thousands. You can't even fix or or rectify that situation with your boss that you're worried about. You can't do it. You're a pile of dust. You are not even holding yourself together. You are not even drawing your next breath based on your own power. Only God can do it. And he will do it. He will carry you through it. He's promised to enable you to live for him regardless of whatever situation you may find yourself in. He's put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Now, as I've gone through this psalm, some of you may have tuned out by now. You might be thinking that what David was going through was purely persecution. That David, a righteous man, was being persecuted by wicked people, and him being a righteous man, David was right to expect God to deliver him. But you say, Josh, I am facing a distressing situation that has come upon me, not because of my righteous behavior, but because of my sin. I have no business praying a prayer like Psalm 3. I am in a mess of my own making. What does this psalm have to do with me? But that is the beauty of this psalm. And that is where the title of this psalm is so encouraging to us. We need to ask the question, why was David fleeing Absalom? Remember how David, at the height of his power and his success, after God had made an unconditional covenant with him to give him an everlasting kingdom, to give that kingdom to one of his descendants, David's heart grew complacent, and he ended up doing what? committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband to cover up his sin. And it seems that around a year went by without David ever repenting for that. Maybe he thought, I'm the king, I can do what I want, it's my right, it's my privilege. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. And Nathan comes before King David, and he indicts him in blistering fashion. And he pronounces to David what God is going to do to him as a result of his sin. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we see what Nathan says God is going to do to David. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And verse 11 Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. 
and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has t- also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Nathan said that God was going to raise up evil against David from within his own household. And everything that Nathan prophesied about that would come to pass in the insurrection of David's son, Absalom. Absalom was the one who stole David's wives. He's the one who took his throne, who made that statement that I'm king now by taking David's harem. So why was David fleeing Absalom? It was a mess of his own making. It was the consequences of his own sin against God. God was showing himself to be holy in his response against David's sin by raising up Absalom against him. And he was disciplining David in order to bring David closer to himself. And so God's intentions behind the insurrection of Absalom were good intentions. God was intending to to uh, lift up his holiness, to glorify himself, and he was intending to drive David closer to himself. He was disciplining his child. But when you look at it from Absalom's point of view, from the devil's point of view, what's their intention? Is it, oh, you know, my dad did something bad, I need to teach him this lesson, I'll discipline him, and then when he's learned his lesson, I'll just hand it back over. No, his intention was to destroy his father. His intention was not God's intention. So with the one hand, God is disciplining David by Absalom's rebellion, and at the same time, with the other hand, he is shielding David against Absalom and against the devil who are seeking not to discipline David but to destroy him. God is protecting David from allowing Absalom and the devil to do more than what God is intending to be done to him. And so even though David's distress has in large measure come about due to his own sin, it is right for him to seek the Lord's gracious protection against those who are seeking to do more to him than what God is intending to be done to him. He's asking God to protect him from those who seek his everlasting harm. So if you are in a mess of your own making, can you take Psalm 3 upon your lips? Yes, you can. But here's the thing. You have to pray Psalm 51 before you can pray Psalm 3. Let me explain what I mean by that. When David prayed Psalm 3, He was not praying it presumptuously. David didn't murder a man, steal his wife, and then go his merry way. And now that he's facing some trouble, he's crying out to God, not caring a whit about the holiness of God and presumptuously expecting God to bail him out for his own screwing up. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not praying Psalm 3 without having first repented. He's repented first. You saw in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, how David confessed 
his sin. And we read Psalm 51 before we started this message. And you saw in that psalm, which at the very top said, David prayed this because of what he did with Bathsheba. You saw how David was broken over his sin, how he turned from his sin, how he asked God to forgive him for his sin. I want you to turn now to 2 Samuel 15. So David's repented. God has forgiven him. But that does not mean that there are no consequences for his sin. God was still going to chasten his son, his child. And I want you to see David's response to the chastening of God. 2 Samuel 15, 20, verse 24. So David is fleeing Jerusalem and there's people loyal to him who are joining him on his flight out of the city. It says, verse 24, Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Now keep that in mind and we'll go to chapter 16 and verse 5. David is still on the run, leaving trying to get to a place of safety. Chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. Now as Shimei is calling David this, what do you think is going through David's mind? He's seen evil rise up within his own household. What is he thinking of? He's thinking of the rebuke of Nathan. He's thinking of what God said God was going to do to him because of what he did. And when Shimei says, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow, we have to believe that replaying in David's mind is his sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. Verse 8, the Lord has, Shimei doesn't get that though, he thinks it's because of what he did to Saul. Verse 8, the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. What does David do? Does he say, yeah, get rid of that guy? No, verse 10, But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses... And if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite, let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. 
Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. So when we look at these two passages, what is David doing in these two passages? Is he grumbling against God? Is he protesting, saying he doesn't deserve to suffer what he's suffering? No, David humbly and he patiently submits himself to the discipline of God and he casts himself upon the mercy of God and he acknowledges that God's dealings with him are just. He knows he's deserving what is happening. He submits himself to it. So if you know, if you're being distressed and you know that you are facing God's discipline upon you, because of your sin. Yes, you should pray Psalm 3 that God would protect you from allowing the evil one to do more to you than what God intends to be done to you. But you should pray Psalm 3 only after praying Psalm 51. You should seek God's gracious help to carry you through his discipline and to protect you, but only if you've first repented of your sin and are willingly, humbly submitting yourself to whatever discipline the Lord would be pleased to visit upon you. And not grumble that God is unjust for doing that. No, he's not. Now, why can the holy God deal so kindly and graciously with us in this way? He's forgiven David of his sin. He's disciplining David to bring David closer to himself. How is it that God can act that way toward us and not just pour his wrath out upon us and say, I'm done with you. Well, remember that word in verse 2, deliverance or salvation. And we saw that same word in verse 8, salvation. That's the Hebrew word, Yoshua. And what name does that sound like? Sounds like Yehoshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And what is the Greek rendering of Joshua? It's Iesus, it's Jesus, the one in whom God's promises to David are all fulfilled. He is that descendant who will reign on his throne forever. Jesus is the ultimate king that we read about in Psalm 2. Jesus is the only one who's perfectly lived out Psalm 1. And as the son of David, whom God promised would sit on the throne of David forever, Jesus walked in David's footsteps when he was here on this earth. Like David, Jesus, after revealing himself to Israel as Israel's king, like David, Jesus was rejected by his people. He was betrayed by a close companion, just like David. And just like David, Jesus left Jerusalem, he crossed the brook Kidron, and he went to the Mount of Olives. That's what David did. You can read about that. And it may be that the very Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, that that's where David prayed Psalm 3. We're not told that, but it may be. It's the same mount. But unlike David, Jesus was not suffering for his own sins. Jesus was not in a mess of his own making, by his own sin. No. 
And unlike David, Jesus was not delivered from death. He was delivered over to death on a cross in order to pay for his people's sins. And he paid for his people's sins so that they would experience the salvation, the Yoshua of God that he came to bring them. And that's the salvation that David prays for in Psalm 3. And that's why you can pray that psalm if you have Jesus. So are you in distress, whether it's a mess of your own making or not? If people say to you or they say about you that there is no salvation, there is no Yeshua for you and God, remember that if you have Jesus, they are wrong. You have the salvation of God in him. And if you cast your cares upon the Lord, you will have perfect peace in him. And if you do not know Jesus, if you do not have him as your Lord and Savior, then there is no salvation for you. But you can have him, if only you will repent and trust in him. Father, we thank you for Psalm 3 and that reminder that even if we are suffering your discipline, that Lord in Christ, you have not abandoned us, that there is still salvation for us as a present possession because we have Jesus who suffered your wrath in our place. And so we can cry out to you confident that your discipline is for your glory and for our good in our lives and that we can know that you will accomplish good things for us through your discipline. And we can cry out to you to protect us from the devil who would seek to bring us everlasting harm. But we know that in Christ that's not your will for us who have trusted in him. And so we can confidently pray Psalm 3. Lord, we thank you for giving us these psalms that we can take upon our lips when we don't know what to say. Father, we thank you for being so kind and gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen.